you like, get comfortable. All right. Boy. Sometimes I think we don't understand how much God is aware of what's happening in our lives. But we have to uh, kind of remind ourselves that that's what He does. He's concerned with us. He's concerned with our lives. And He wants to be next to us. And He wants us to be close to Him. So that time of prayer is, is just so nice. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John. We'll be going through John for a while. This is called the Incarnation Series, and we're currently in John chapter 2, which we will be wrapping up today. We've been going through the Gospel, and we understand that the Gospel uh, writer, John, the Apostle, he's making the case about Jesus Christ and who he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And he brings forth evidence so that we would believe that. He tells us in his 20th chapter of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So he puts forth evidence. Sometimes he cuts to the chase, and he lets us know who, he's, who Jesus is in simple terms, so that we might believe and have eternal life in him. Last week, we saw Jesus at the wedding in Cana, John chapter 2 at the beginning. He miraculously turned water into wine, which was his first miracle. And this miracle was, interestingly enough, at a wedding. And a wedding, we know, is in Scripture a picture of salvation. It's a marriage between the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. Symbolic of a wedding. And it was a miracle of complete transformation. The water in those jugs were, was completely transformed into wine. Just like what he does. To us, when we come to him, he completely transforms us. He completely transforms our hearts. The Bible says we are a new creation in Christ. We're not just a better upgrade of who we were. We're a new creation. That miracle at the wedding in Cana was a miracle of conversion, which is what happens when we find Jesus. In verse 12 of John chapter 2, we see that Jesus and his family and disciples had been in Capernaum, which is by Galilee, way north. And now we see Jesus back in Jerusalem at the temple, which is about 100 miles south. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he was 100 miles south of where he had just been. So he and his disciples have been traveling on foot for quite a ways. They're getting to know each other. Just imagine along those long trips, you talk and you get to know one another. So I think when he first called those first five disciples in John chapter 1, they didn't know him. They know about him, maybe. But on those travels north, 100 miles, south, 100 miles, they got to know him a lot better. So we begin in John chapter 2, verse 13 today, and I'll read through verse 25. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today because we love you. We're gathered here on your day because of you, only because of you, and because of what your Son has done and how your Spirit works in our lives every single day. Lord, we pray that we hear from you, from your Word today, that it applies to us. We can see how we can use this truth from you this week. Pray that it encourages us, strengthens our faith, and gives us a clear path forward to minister to those around us. We believe we come to church every Sunday to be edified and encouraged so that we can take this message out and bring others in. We thank you, Lord. Bless this service as it's led by the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you this morning, if you've ever had a passion for something, I know we probably all have had a passion for something or a strong conviction for something. Think of a passion you've had maybe when you were young or maybe even now. I wonder if you can remember, because of this passion you might have had for something, that if you might have acted out in anger. And maybe at the time you found that you were right. You were right to be angry. We have something called righteous anger that we believe in. You can be angry. We're humans. Or maybe looking back, you realize, well, maybe you were wrong. You were angry and, and you were wrong. And you found out in hindsight that that's how it went. Well, today our passage in John deals with passion. And it deals with zeal. On the part of Jesus, he had a passion for righteousness. He had a zeal for his father's house. And he became righteously angry. And on the part of the Jews, a passion that had grown cold in their worship. As we walk through our text today, think about what you're passionate about today. As we understand what we're going to be reading what are our passions? Are they set in the right places? Do we have zeal for the right things? It's good to once in a while to reprioritize our lives according to Scripture. And so I would say that if we have no passion, we should take that to prayer because this, this world is amazing. This, God's creation is wonderful. There's people in it. There's, there's things for us to do to be passionate about. But we all probably have had or do have passions. And we should check those against the Word. They could be misplaced. And has your zeal for what's most important grown cold? It probably has waned here and there as we've gone through our life, but what's the state of it now? And as you may have noticed, as we've been walking through the Scripture, through John, here in this first couple months, we've been making it a point to try to interpret Scripture as best we can, to get the most out of it as we can. And what do I mean? Well, we think of things like the genre that we're in. We know that Genre is a different type of literature. We read the Psalms, which are songs or poetry, differently. Then we read John the Gospel, which is historical narrative about Jesus Christ. We read those things differently. You read a phone book differently than you read the encyclopedia. It's a genre. We, we handle those texts differently. 
So depending on where we are in Scripture, we have to approach it differently. We take that into account. We take into account the grammar of the text. You know, tenses are important. I don't like English uh, classes. I, I never liked that. But it's very important. Did this thing happen in the past or in the present? Or is it something that happens in the future? These little things are important. We don't want to breeze over God's Word too fast. We also want to look at the historical context. What's happening in and around the places and the events that we're reading about? These things have great importance because we in our 21st century mind might think one way because we've lived in this country for our entire lives, been taught a Western culture. We might miss a lot that these people 2,000 years ago would understand that we miss. These types of approaches are important. And this is a little plug for the Bible study boot camp coming up in a few weeks. These are the types of things that we'll be going over, how to approach Scripture. It's important to us. Because this is, after all, God's word. It's not just John the Apostle's word, it's the word of God. And he's written this to us for a reason. So as we approach scripture, here particularly in John, it's always important to see how this passage, wherever we're in, whatever passage you're in in scripture, how that passage relates to God's overarching story of his redemption for his people through his son. Because there's a reason for everything in Scripture. And somehow, some way, you'll see in your notes, if you have your notes, your first note says, all Scripture somehow connects to God's plan of redemption. All Scripture somehow connects to the story of Jesus Christ coming to earth to save us as God on earth. You won't find any passage in Scripture that's just there for no reason. They don't exist. Everything has a purpose in Scripture. Here's an example. Last week we saw Jesus completely transform water into wine. This is what he does for us at the moment we believe in him. To our hearts, he completely transforms us. This week, let's keep in mind as we continue to see how John includes his God, in his gospel what, how that relates to God's story of redeeming his people. Last week it was about a conversion. And I'll begin in verse 13 of today's text in John chapter 2. Says John, uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It says Passover was at hand. Passover was a really big deal in Jerusalem. It was one of God's appointed times. In Leviticus 23, he gives us seven appointed times, seven feasts or festivals of the Lord. You may have heard of the word Moedim, the Moedim of the Lord. And Passover was one of them, one of the three Jewish pilgrimage festivals where people would have to go to Jerusalem physically to celebrate it fully. Not all could do that, but if you could, they'd like you to be there in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem kind of swelled in population during Passover. The others were Shavuot, that's, uh, we know it as Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, that was about seven weeks after Passover, and also Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three feasts that Jerusalem would, uh, I guess, swell in size and population by about four times. And there was about, uh, people say, estimated a quarter of a million people or more in Jerusalem at any one time. So it would, it would swell to a, a, over a million people during these, these feasts. And so it says here in verse 13 that he went up to Jerusalem. Well, we just 
Remember hearing that Jesus was in around Jerusalem when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Then he went north 100 miles to Galilee. And then he came back down to Jerusalem. Well, we say, that, we say it that way in our Western culture. Again, this is one of those things. You look on a map, you have north is at the top. South is at the bottom. You want to go south, you go down. Going down to Florida. But here, they thought of it as an elevation. Jerusalem is higher elevation than Capernaum, even though on a map it's down. But it's about a thousand or more feet higher. So they had to make the trip up to Jerusalem. You see how that works? They did a lot of traveling. I think they were in pretty good shape. Good hikers. These, these men, <laughs> the distances they traveled. When's the last time you walked 100 miles? I don't know if I'd walked 100 miles this year. I'm sure I have, but in verse 14, it goes on to say, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. This would have been, a, would have been in the court of the Gentiles, they call it. The temple mount was huge. The temple mount was, you think, football fields wide and long. And the, the temple itself, the temple structure, the Holy of Holies was in the middle, but there was a, a large open courtyard they called the court of the Gentiles where anyone could come in. Jews or Gentiles. You could come in and do, uh, you know, you could buy their, your sacrifices there and, and do business, maybe buy some fruits or something. That was for everybody. That's where they were. He walked into the, the temple. That, that term temple means the temple mount, the entire structure, the compound. And there would have been, remember, over probably hundreds of thousands of more people in Jerusalem for this festival of Passover during this time. The town would have been booming out-of-towners coming in. And the travelers knew that they had to have their Passover lamb and they had to have their sacrifices. Some had pigeons or lambs or oxen. You could tell kind of the small, medium, or large sacrifice, I guess, depending on what you needed. But they wouldn't typically travel with their sacrifices. It was less convenient. So many of them, in fact, most of them, would travel and then purchase their sacrifice there at the temple. And that's why this was going on. And Jesus saw this happening and in order to purchase your sacrifice or even to enter the temple, you had to give the currency that was accepted in Jerusalem. So you had to exchange your money. And they had the exchange rates. And people in Jerusalem would make money on the exchange rates. And I'm sure Jesus saw people taking advantage of this and he didn't like it. The people were coming to Passover to worship God as he had told them to do back in Leviticus. But along the way, they made a few bucks along the, uh, on the side. And God did not like that. Now, he's a very patient God, and this went on for some time, years, until he said, that's enough. And this is where Jesus enters the scene. People had become calloused in their keeping of the Passover. Doesn't that happen to us, too? It had just become an overly religious event for them. Not really from the heart. Generally speaking, I'm sure there were Jews there that did it from the heart, but on mass, on the whole... God knew their hearts. He knew it was just something they had to check off on their list of something to do this week. And this had, as Jesus knew, this had happened before in the hearts of people in and around Jerusalem. In fact, in and around the temple. In fact, the, Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed before this. This was the second temple. And when left unchecked, this is the tendency of all of us in our hearts, too. We get calloused, we get relaxed, we get 
It just becomes happenstance to go to church. Yeah, we'll make it on Sunday. We'll be there. We'll endure it for an hour and a half, but my mind's someplace else. So this is on the grander scale of generations, and this is what happens. If we approach our faith that way and our, I don't even like to use the word religion that way, our, our faith walk that way, it does grow cold. And it, we, we do feel that distance, don't we? we? We grow distant. We still make that trip to church, but we're not thinking about the Lord. We're thinking about the game or the, the party we're going to afterwards or whatever problem we're having this week, and we know that meeting's coming up on Tuesday. We can't get our mind off of it. And we're not focused on him, on his throne, on the eyes of Jesus. And our heart's certainly not there. The next note you have say, we must constantly focus our hearts upon Jesus or they will draw, draw our focus away from him. We have to train our hearts, you know, because if we follow our hearts, like Disney always says, follow your heart. If we do that, it's going to lead us here one day and there the next day, and it's here and there and everywhere, and according to whatever passions we have, we'll be all over the map. We have to train our hearts. And we understand what that word means, heart. It's not the physical thing that's pumping blood. It, it's the core of our being. It's who we are. It's what our, our will and our thoughts and emotions are surrounded upon. We just call it the heart. What do we want? Our desires, our passions, our zeal. Where is that? We have to train that. We have to bring that into God's plan because it wants to go running off like a wild horse somewhere else into the passions of this world. We have to kind of rein it in according to the word of God. Constantly, and constantly refocus our heart on the things of God. Otherwise, if we, we let it guide us, we don't know where we're going to be from one day to the next. We can't trust our hearts. The Bible says, what does the Bible say about our hearts? One thing it says is that it's deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's what Disney says they want you to follow. Something that's deceitful above all things, above all things, and desperately sick, and some translations say desperately wicked. It just wants what it wants. Maybe some of you have a psychology background or have heard the term the id, the ego, and the superego. Have you heard of that? The superego, these are terms that we will never have to use after today, but it's that more refined public presence that you show people. You're very professional. Then you go back to the the ego, and then the id is the core kind of uh, primal desires. I just want what I want. I'm so hungry right now. I could, you know, just do whatever it takes, and I just want what I want. And if I have to steal, I'm going to steal. And you move up the scale of, well, maybe I shouldn't because I'll get in trouble, or maybe you move up the, 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 the way you want to portray yourself, and you say, well, it probably wouldn't look very good if I was uh, a pastor and I was a thief, and, but in my core, I know I, I just shouldn't steal because God doesn't want me to steal. It's that core. Where are we? That's your heart. We have to always be refining it. I can't trust my primal desires, as they say, because it just wants what it wants. Not right now. And I don't care what I have to do to get it. Hurt people along the way. Lie, cheat, and steal. That's what the human heart left unchecked will lead you into. We have to always guard against that every day. And so we mentioned the first temple was destroyed. It was about 600 years before Jesus. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. 
And for the same reasons, we read this in 2 Kings 25, that Nebuchadnezzar's army burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were the, the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed before. We like to have second chances. And say, well, God, can you just give me a second chance? Well, God gave the Israelites a huge second chance. 600 years passed. They let them rebuild the temple, build Jerusalem back up after the captivity, gave them back the sacrifices, the, the system of sacrifice, and they had it all back. And Jesus came and he said, it's all going away again because of the same issue. Your hearts are far from me. The people's passion for the Lord had waned. And if you remember your Old Testament, remember how excited the people were to be coming back from captivity? And we're gonna say, they said, we're going to build the walls again. We're going to build the temple again. It's going to be awesome. And then a few generations go by, and it's right back to following their heart. It's the human condition. It's no different today. We haven't solved this issue and 50 years before that happened, where Solomon's temple was destroyed, we were told about it, that it would happen. Jeremiah tells us, the Lord says this, listen to what the Lord says about what his people are doing in his temple, the first temple. He says in Jeremiah 6, Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this, temp, this people stumbling blocks against which they will stumble, fathers and sons together, Neighbor and friend shall perish. And even before Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah 1 says, the Lord is speaking here. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, the Lord says. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Can you imagine having God say this to you through a prophet about how we've been worshiping God? I know you're doing the sacrifices, you're praying the prayers, you're singing songs, but I'm so sick of it because I know it's not sincere and I'm done with it. I'm not even listening to your prayers anymore, he said. And if that weren't enough from Amos chapter 5, the Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. There's certain things in Scripture, like when Jesus says on Judgment Day to the people who are unbelievers, that say, Lord, we, we did things in your name and we did all these things in your name. And he said, depart from me. Remember that? I don't know who you are. We never had a relationship. Depart from me. 
So the point here is that we might be thinking that we're worshiping God. But are we? We might think that we're going to the temple, we're going to the church, and we're going to dress up and we're going to sing some songs and we're going to pray. But will he listen? Because is our heart in it? Or are we just walking through the motions? You know what? I don't know if you are or not, but he does. You don't know if I am or not, but he does. The people were outwardly worshiping God. They were. Millions of people probably came through Jerusalem over those three feasts. But God says most of them, because he went ahead and did what he did, most of them were only doing it outwardly, not inwardly, not with their hearts. And that's the kind of worship to which God will not listen, that outward only worship. He's told us himself through his scripture, through his prophets. We do not want God to reject our worship. But if all it is is outward actions and not of the heart, that's what he'll do. He's God. He can do that. He could say, you know what? Save the sacrifices. Don't even make the trip. Just save, save the trouble and stay home. Stay in bed. I don't want to hear from you, basically, is what he's saying. I won't listen to you because he knows your heart and mine. And if our worship is not from the heart, which God knows if it is or not, it's meaningless and even offensive to God. He's saying, you're mocking me by acting like you're worshiping me. Just keep your mouth shut. And he has the power to proclaim judgment upon his people. Your next note says, our hearts must be involved in worship for it to be glorifying to God. Our hearts must be involved. Because if it's just our body doing it, just don't do it. He knows it. You're not trying to fool. You're only fooling the people in the room. And, and what much, how much does that really matter? We must always be careful not to fall into the same trap of the Israelites with our day-to-day lives and busy schedules because we are susceptible to do that. We find ourselves just going through the motions. All of us can attest to this. We do it all the time. Our hearts are always bent toward doing that. Selfishness. And we can become hardened. And we can become distant from God. Because we eventually become consumed by the desires of our flesh. Happens to everybody. And eventually become consumed by the desires of what we want only instead of the desires of God. In verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 15, says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. first thing that we should know here is that Jesus made a whip of cords. You say, well, why is that important? Why is that interesting, notable, noteworthy? He made a whip of cords. It's interesting and noteworthy because he took the time to do this. He walked into the temple. He saw what was going on at the beginning of his ministry. Because remember, he cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. He walks in, he sees the money changers making a ridiculous amount of money on the exchange rates. 
He sees the pigeons and the oxen and the cattle, the merchants making more money than they should, using God's name to make a profit. And he got angry. And he experienced righteous anger. And anger, that was righteous. He was right to be upset about what was going on. But he took a minute. He didn't lash out in anger. He was deliberate. He, he took a minute. He made a, a, a whip of cords. He took the time. He had control of his anger. If he was out of control and, and just hysterical, there would be no whip we're reading about today. It would have said something else. He ran over and grabbed the throat of the money changer. No, it's not in there. When's the last time you really blew your top and you paused? Right away. And if you do, that means you're growing in your spiritual maturity because that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, having self-control. But remember when you hadn't learned that yet and you just flipped your lid and you just went off and did something that was not very smart and now you have to deal with the consequences. That's part of life. But Jesus didn't do that. He took the time to make a whip of cords. He did not act impulsively or out of control. And this was not a display of violence here, remember. This was a display of authority. Later in John, he says he makes himself equal with God because he calls himself the Son of God. In John chapter 5, and then the Pharisees wanted to stone him because he said this. You call yourself the Son of God means you're making yourself equal with God. Well, he says, this is the house of my Father, God the Father. And I'm taking offense to this. And this is not right that it would be done here. It's not violence, it's authority that he exhibited on that day. And this is probably the most physical, the most passionately physical thing that Jesus had done in his ministry. And he still restrained himself. He was human like us. He had the divine nature within him, but he felt what we felt. He felt our emotions, anger, sadness, hunger, and, and strife. But he never lost hope. He knew who God was, his father. But in his physical, in his humanity, he was angry. But he restrained himself. He was not hysterical. He was very deliberate. He says, okay, I'm upset about what's happening in this room, and I'm going to go outside for a minute, take a count of ten, and I'm going to make a whip of cords, and then we're going to do some business when I get back. And he did, and we're reading about it 2,000 years later. We see no one... No record of anyone being injured here. He wasn't, you know, going crazy and knocking people over and, and hurting people. He wasn't hurting the animals or anything. We're not, we don't see any of that. He even let the merchants keep their animals. He said, get these things out of here. Take these things away. Why was he so passionate, do you think, in this situation? Why would that upset him so much? Well, I think his disciples try to offer an explanation because they mention Psalm 69. It says his disciples remembered Psalm 69 where it says in verse 9, Zeal for your house has consumed me, Psalm of David, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Okay, so why would his disciples remember that passage of all passages? Well, the second part of that psalm, uh, or that verse, in verse 9 reads, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And the NIV renders it like this, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
It means that Jesus, when the people would insult or show irreverence to his father's name, he would feel that. He would also feel that. Like if your father, let's say, was the mayor, and someone was insulting the mayor, and you're at a gathering, and you think to yourself in your mind, you think, hey, that's my dad you're talking about. I'm going to take offense to what you're saying. And then you'll maybe let that person know about it. You see how the reproach on someone else, now you're feeling that? Well, if someone's offending my, my God, now we should probably feel that. That hurts me a little bit here. When you use the Lord's name in vain, and I'm around, hey, I don't like that. Now, I've asked certain people in public places to keep the language cleaner because I have a lot of kids, and they would always do that. But just enough to say, whoa, whoa, can you keep down, you know, which words I'm talking about here? That should offend us. We're God's children. And here, in the ultimate example, the Son of God walks into the, the God, God the Father's house, the temple, and these people are making a mockery and they're being irreverent and they're doing business and making profit in the house of the Lord. Jesus feels that reproach, that insult, that irreverence, and he wants to do something about it. Can we relate to that in our faith walk? When someone dishonors God's name, not just with the language they're using, but with their actions, if they're doing something and they're saying they're a Christian and you know what they're doing is not Christian, you say, hey, what are you doing over here? This is not right. We should have a talk. Are you doing this on purpose or are you mocking my faith or are you just ignorant? But it should affect us. Do we feel that offense? We should feel it. We should be there to defend our faith. It's one thing when the world dishonors God, but when another professing Christian dishonors God, maybe they don't know they're doing it. They need maybe some instruction, but if they profess a faith in Jesus and then they go off and they do something for, like we looked at last week in Titus, shameful gain, using Jesus' name, and they're scamming people, let's say. It happens every day. We should feel that and perhaps do something godly about it. We should have a righteous reaction, and it's okay to have that righteous anger. Not sinning, but something gets stirred up in you to say, this has to be changed. This has to be more godly. And I must be here hearing this to do something about it. Your next note says, We are told in Scripture, be angry and do not sin. God knows we're going to get angry. We're going to get sad and we're going to be happy. And, and we have emotions. We're emotional people. We're emotional beings. But he says, it's okay. You can be angry, but don't sin. Being angry is not sinning. But you can definitely sin while out of your anger. Jesus here was experiencing righteous anger for the defilement of his father's name and house. But he didn't sin. You know, he felt angry, but he did not sin that day. He even flipped over the tables. He even yelled at people. You know, the 11th commandment, have you ever heard this? People say, the 11th commandment is thou shall be nice. (laughs) If you're not nice, you can throw all the other 10 out is what, what it seems like. On this day, was Jesus being nice? Was he being polite? Well, no, but he wasn't sinning either. He was doing the right thing. And a lot of times that takes gumption. And it takes a fortitude to stand upon what you believe and say, this is wrong. 
You can talk directly to people respectfully and not sin. You stand for the truth. You be bold because it's really not you speaking it. It's really not your message. It's the Lord's message. You're just the messenger. It's easy to speak that way when you know this is not my message. I'm just the ambassador of Jesus. And he says, this is wrong, so this is wrong. And you let that sit with the person. And hopefully the Spirit can get into their heart and say, you're right. I should not have been doing that. And maybe these people, these merchants were changed and they saw, he's got authority here and I, I know I shouldn't have been doing that. But he didn't sin. We need to check our attentions and emotions. We need to take the time when we feel that anger stirring up in us. Take the time. Make a uh, metaphorical whip of cords and just breathe for a minute. Say, Lord, what, what am I doing? Is this right? Is it just me getting angry? Is there something you want me to do here? We should have a certain zeal for God's house, like Jesus did that day. And his name, we should care when people dishonor him or, or his things. It should affect us. When the Lord is insulted, we should feel insulted. That's what Psalm 69 means. And when you, t- you t- have reproach on my, my God, my Father, I'm, I feel that. And we can fight for his truth and not sin. Moving on to verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember, John again likes, likes that term, the Jews. It means, as John uses it, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the Jews. What sign do you show us for doing these things? He was uh, causing a ruckus. They didn't know who he was. Who was this, this guy? He was new on the scene, Jesus. It was a huge disruption during the Passover feast, one if not the, the main feast of the year. And there's this person flipping tables over and running people out of the, the courtyard. They wanted to know who he was. Verse 19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews wanted uh, Jesus to show them a sign for doing what he did. And every time I hear this, or something like this, I think of the passage in Matthew when, when the Pharisees wanted a sign from Jesus at the end of his ministry. Well, show us a sign. Really prove to us who you are. Like they're saying, well, just you know, do a dance and maybe we'll believe you. And Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And we're going to see at the end of this passage that that comes into play here because those people that quote-unquote believed, they believed something, but they wanted the signs. It was really neat to see Jesus do these things. So they followed. Wouldn't you follow a traveling magic show or a circus? For a while. Then once you figure out all the tricks, you stop following. Jesus knows what's in all of our hearts. And he knows who are following him just because it's kind of fun to follow him or it's the cultural thing to do. But we need to follow him genuinely. Even when, if no one else would follow him anymore. The people that stay with him, those are the ones that he wants, that he knows are true believers. In his reply, he, he prophesies to them, though they don't realize it. They say, who are you? What are you doing? He says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He prophesies that to them. Three and a half years or so, three years before he does it, raises from the dead, he says he's going to do it. 
They heard him say this, but they didn't understand. He says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up. Well, they thought he was talking about the big temple in front of them, of stone. They mock him and say, it took 46 years to build this structure. You can't tear it down and bring it back in three days. But they didn't get it. And his disciples didn't understand either until later. Then they got it together. They put it together. So on this day, he was talking about the temple of his body. He's standing in front of the temple, and he mentions the word temple, but he's talking about his body, the temple. Makes that connection now. There's two things here. He refers to his body as the temple, and he said that he would raise it, that he would raise it after three days. As a little side note, in Scripture it says in Romans 6 and in Galatians 1 that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And here in, in John 2, Jesus himself and in other places says that he raised himself from the dead. In Romans 4, 1 and 8, it says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's a beautiful understanding of the Trinity here, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Scripture, being given the, uh, I guess, the, the attribution of raising Jesus from the dead. It wasn't Jesus alone, the Spirit alone, or just the Father and the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together, in, in perfect communion, with a perfect will, did this. So we can forever say, this is God's will, in unity. And in Revelation 13, it talks about how the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. This was always the plan. And it shows us here that God is unified in raising Christ from the dead. And when the disciples heard this and saw it, it says they believed. And like a week or two ago, we, said, we say, you know, the disciples already believed, just like you and I already believed, but it could be said that at this point, when they saw him raised from the dead, they believed even more. Their belief was emboldened, fortified. Sometimes we talk about our faith wavering. Boy, I'm getting shaky. My, my, my faith is wavering. I'm kind of shaky. Don't you want a fortified faith? Boy, if you saw the things the disciples saw, if you saw Christ with you for three years and then die in front of you and then three days later raise from the dead, you would really believe, they would say, I mean, you've already believed for three years, but now you really believe. You saw it. And they did prove that they really believed because they gave their lives in horrible ways. The disciples, a lot of them tortured and killed and sawn in half and crucified upside down and boiled in oil and all the rest. You think of one, maybe two would have said, okay, it actually didn't happen. But no. They all went to their grave because they know it happened. What an amazing testimony for us today who may doubt. Continuing in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man it says he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man he said i don't need anyone to tell me about what's in the heart of man because i already know what's in their hearts 
because I know all men. It's kind of saying it was plain as day to him who was genuinely following him and who was just kind of along for the ride. Many believed in his name, but, it says, he did not entrust himself to them. Other translations render it, he did not commit himself to them. And we're given the reason for that, because he knew all people. He knew what was in man. The New Living Translation says, he knew what was in each person's heart. Because he's God. You can't fake Jesus out. You can look pretty good to me or your neighbor or the other people in the room, but he knows. He looks through the crowd and he knows who's who. Who are the sheep and who are the goats? When we come to Jesus and when we believe in him, he, we commit our life to him. The Bible says we, we make that commitment. And then he also commits to save us all the way. It's a commitment, a two-way street. But he does not commit to save all people, not those who reject him. As we see in this verse, and he can see the hearts of all men. He knows which ones are truly his sheep. In John 10, he talks about the good shepherd, and Jesus says, I know my own, and they know me. He knows who we are, if you're truly believing in him. And so we have some practical things from this passage for us, this message today. Jesus cleanses the temple. The topical heading above your paragraph there probably says something like the cleansing of the temple, or Jesus cleanses the temple. Last week, we read about Jesus' first sign, which was a sign of conversion, water into wine, just as we are converted upon belief in him, expressing faith in him. We're converted, we say. This is what happens first in our Christian walk. The theological term is justification, justified. When we believe we're converted, we're saved, we're justified. And that word justified means if you're in a court of law, you're justified to leave innocent. You're justified in your action. Sometimes when there's a, a shooting, a law enforcement shoots, uh, unfortunately, a citizen. They go to trial and they see if the shooting was justified, they say, according to law. And so we, another word for salvation is justification. It's the first thing that happens in our Christian walk. When we believe, we come from death to life, our eyes are open, we see the light, the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're justified. That was last week, the conversion. This week, when Jesus cleanses the temple, just as we're continuously cleansed in our Christian walk, last week was about justification. This week is about sanctification. Sanctification means to set something aside for a holy purpose, to be sanctified, cleansing, to become holy. Your note your next note says, first we are saved, then we are cleansed. We don't want to mix these two up. Some people mis- mix it up. My dad used to say, you don't uh, clean yourself up to take a shower. That's the point of the shower. And people say, well, you got, you're going to go to church Sunday? Well, you shouldn't go to church. You need to clean up your life and then get to church. No, that is not the way it goes. You come to Jesus first and he cleans you up. Because you can't clean yourself. Spiritually speaking, we can't clean our hearts without Jesus. There's an order here. 
See how John, guided by the Spirit, writes these things in this order of events. He's writing a story about a wedding, water turning into wine. He's writing a story about Jesus walking into the temple and flipping over some tables. But the Spirit knows this is a, this is a, a story, a picture, an order of how salvation works. We're married to our bridegroom and we're converted. Our hearts are changed completely. And then we're cleansed again. First, we're born again, a new creation, transformed, converted, say it how you want. Then we're made clean. We're sanctified, always conforming into the image of Christ. Later in Jesus' life, during the last week of his life, he cleanses the temple once again, which also shows us this cleansing isn't just a one-time thing. This cleansing, this sanctification process is a process. It goes on, and it's, it's happening all the time. This cleansing is not a one-time thing like salvation is a one-time thing. You come to Christ, and we're sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. But the cleansing goes on and on and on. It's continual. Your next note says, being saved happens once, but being cleansed happens continuously. We're always being cleaned by Jesus. It's continuously happening in our lives, and only when we see Jesus will it be complete. And at that point, we'll be utterly cleansed of all sin and perfectly sanctified, praise God. And in this, this message here, it's also important to understand. Scripture says that we are the temple of God. Jesus cleanses the temple, and we are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know, Paul says, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? How much more clear can he be? Do you not know that you are God's temple? The Spirit dwells within you. You know, at the time of the second temple, you know what was in the Holy of Holies? Nothing. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple, in the first temple. And through the, uh, the dispersion and the exile, it was lost. In the second temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. You know who the, where the, the presence of God dwelled at that moment when Christ was at the temple in Christ? He was the temple. He was the true temple at that time, saying, this is not going to happen in here. And now he says, we are the temple. Why? Because the Spirit dwells in us. Ephesians 2 says, you are no longer, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, but on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. That's the church. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're told more than once in Scripture that we are the temple of God. Now, on a personal level, the Holy Spirit is within me and within each and every one of you, if you believe. But as a corporate body, he resides in this corporate body. This is the temple. We are the temple. Not these walls. Us. He's within us. Your next note says, knowing this, we should be diligent always to take an account of ourselves, of our temples. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We don't want sin in our temple. We should think of a verse like this as a mantra from the old King James Version, Psalm 139, where it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. 
we should take an inventory of our hearts, of our temples, because God dwells within us. So we should be open to the Lord saying, search me, O God. Search those corners of my heart. See if there's any wicked stuff in there. If there's any wicked way in me. I want to know about it. And I want to get rid of it. Sometimes we don't even realize our sin because it's so habitual. The Spirit will help us see that. And so as we close, as we look at your heart today personally, what does he see? Does he see one that's one of a true believer with a repentant heart? I'm sure at times we've all done that. We've all been true, truly repentant. And I'm sure also at times, sometimes we've tried to fake it. Surely he sees, as only he can, the cleansing that still needs to happen. And I think most of the time we know it needs to happen too. We don't want to admit it. But sometimes I, I really think we don't even see it sometimes. We realize, oh my goodness, I didn't even know I was doing that. But you're right, i got to stop. I have to change that. Not in order to be saved, not in order to be justified, in order to be sanctified. There's a big difference. We should see those places we need to change, like looking in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? If you see your heart in the mirror, what would you see? Because that's what he sees. He sees it just as it is. We should always be inspecting our temples for the sin that needs to be cleansed. Your next note says we should have a zeal for the things of God. One of the things of God is His temple. We should have a passion to keep His temple pure. I know we're not going to get there 100% until we see Him in glory, but we should have a zeal for that. We should have a zeal for righteousness that consumes us. We should have a passion for holiness. We should welcome Him into the temples of the... our temples to cleanse us every single day, to sanctify us. He was cleansing the temple that day, cleaning out the riffraff. Another word for cleansing, again, is sanctification. It means to set apart for a holy purpose. And we're set apart for a holy purpose, to serve the Lord. It's a process of striving for holiness. It's not very popular these days, but we should strive for holiness. We should aim for righteousness. Don't get lax in our worship. Make sure it's from the heart. We should be actively ridding sin from our lives. Some of the old fathers of the church would would call it the mortification of the flesh. Mortifying sin, killing the sin in your life. Otherwise, it'll kill you. It'll lead to our death. Sanctification is always about becoming more like Jesus. It's so simple. Be like Jesus. In what we think, our thoughts, in how we act, our deeds... We're always being sanctified. Even if we're saved, we still need this cleansing, don't we? John 13 says, Jesus said to him, to his disciples, he says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. He's making an analogy here to salvation. He says, you all are saved. You're completely clean, he said, except for your feet. Why did he say that? Because we're walking through this sinful, dirty world. And some of that stuff gets on us as we go. So, this is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He says, all of you are completely clean except for your feet. So we might, we might be Christians and saved, but the world still gets on us sometimes. 
We've got to wash it off continually. He was making that example for us. And we receive this constant cleansing when we walk closely with Jesus. When we walk closely with Jesus, because if you walk far away from Jesus, you know how that feels. It feels like you're far away from Jesus. What did you think would happen? As long as we do walk closely with Him, we still have to wipe the earthly dust off our feet once in a while, every day. How do we do that? Look to Him. Keep your eyes on Him. Pray. Read your Word, your Bible. Be led by the Spirit and His close counsel. When we get angry, don't let it master us. We master our anger as Christians. That's the fruit of the Spirit, that self-control. We control our anger, and we don't sin. You can get angry, but don't sin. Do we show reverence to the Lord in the ways we worship Him? Does it affect us when others trample upon His name? And sometimes we doubt that He's in control and we worry about our struggles. And you wonder, well, do I really believe in Jesus? He knows. He knows if you really believe. But faith really comes down to trust. Trust Him. Do you trust Him or not? If you say you trust Him, if you say you believe Him, and you don't act like you believe Him, well, do you or not? Do you have faith in Him or not? It means you have, do you trust Him or not to get you through your struggles? He doesn't want us to worry. He wants us to have complete trust in Him and be one of those true believers that He can look across the crowd in the, in the courtyard of the temple and say, yep, that one's one of mine, that one's one of mine. I can see the true faith in them. They, he calls us to deny ourselves. And when He says that, He means deny all your abilities to do what only I can do. You can't clean yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't fix all your problems. You can try, and we all have tried. And we've all figured out, hopefully, he's right. I can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. So let me, let him do what only he can do in my life. Stop trying so hard. He called us to victory. Get this, through surrender. Is that an upside-down way? The world would look at that and say, you win by giving up. That's what Jesus said. Surrender all to me. That's how we gain victory. Because as long as we're trying to get the victory through our abilities, it's not going to work. We are the temple of God and His Spirit lives within us. Let go and let God, His Spirit, do His work. It's His work to do, not yours. We have to stay in our lane. Let Him have His full dominion in you, His temple. We're the temple of God. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me. We'll be receiving the offering in a moment. And we'll have one song as we dismiss. But remember, as you approach, this isn't an altar. We're not approaching here today. But, but in those days, they approached the temple. They approached the name of God. Make sure it's in your heart, even as with the last few minutes we have this morning, because he knows whether it is or not, and it makes all the difference. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that your blessings are upon this giving today. We worship you in giving, too, not just by showing up here in this building, but by, by hearing from your word through your spirit and by giving of what we have, and you, you make it bountiful and blessed. Lord, I pray that Again, you give us the eyes to see the truths of your word that we are literally, as Paul tells us in other places, 
a temple of God. Help us to see our physical bodies that way. Help us to see our congregation that way. And please sanctify our conversations and our thoughts and our deeds, knowing that we reflect you because you live within us. Help refine our mind, our thoughts, to only have godly thoughts. And if we have a thought that is not a godly thought, I pray, Lord, that you remind us this is God's temple and those thoughts are not allowed here. And we have righteous anger and we say, leave. My thoughts are on Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you bless our week. Bless our membership class as we have it this afternoon. Give us a time of relaxation as well as uh, fellowship together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.